So the Super Bowl is coming up this Sunday. Chiefs-Eagles. Big game. And I was thinking about something extraordinary. There are 32 NFL teams. And when I was a kid, there were 26 and then 28. And this is the 57th playing of the Super Bowl, which means every year for 57 years, two teams out of not that many candidates reach the championship clash. And in my 50 years of life, the team I chose as my own as a boy, the New York Jets, have never made it. They played in Super Bowl III well before my birth, and that was that. And I just think it's really hard to be that bad for that long. Like, you'd think once or twice, even by accident, you'd somehow luck your way in. A funny bounce, a squib, something. But no, the New York Jets haven't sniffed a Super Bowl in forever. And I don't think they will for a long, long time. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Nikki Javala, the former Broncos beat writer for the Denver Post and The Athletic, who now covers the Commanders for the Washington Post, and who is in Arizona as we speak for Super Bowl 57. This is episode number 297. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Nikki. Right now, the NFL Network in the lead up to the Super Bowl is playing the 30-minute highlight videos of all the Super Bowls, one after another, after another, after another. And in every video, there's like, you know, and then a hero emerged, or, and then the grittiness of the team, blah, 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 right? Yeah. Don't take this the wrong way because you cover football. I'm sure you love football. Is it all kind of bullshit? Like, are these narratives, these like, and then they overcame the odds and then they made history and then blah, blah, blah. Like, there are 32 NFL teams. One of them is going to win the Super Bowl every year. Like, is it all a little ridiculous? Uh, Some of it is. Yeah. I mean, there are like a handful. Every now and then you'll get one that, in my mind, kind of fits Bill as that. I mean, you think about the Patriots win the you know, where they overcame that deficit to the Falcons. That was pretty incredible, I thought. But then others have just kind of been meh. So I, I covered the Broncos when they won Super Bowl 50, and that was all won by the defense. I mean, Peyton had his worst year ever. I, I think they set the record for the fewest offensive yards by a Super Bowl winner. I mean, it was just a nothing burger of a, you know, offensive performance. So it was a good game, but like if it weren't the Super Bowl, it would be one where you're like, wow, that was that was something, you know, I actually wanted to ask you about covering because that was your first season uh, on the Broncos beat, correct? 2015. Yeah, I was kind of the third wheel on the beat the season before. So that was like my first full, full season. Okay, and this was this was for the Denver Post. I remember after that game, Porter's asking players like, what does it mean to do this for Peyton? What does it mean? I hate those questions. I hate those questions. And I was like, if these guys are being honest, right? If they were being true, that am I wrong on this? They'd be like, eh, I already did it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I hate those questions. I mean, nobody does it for somebody else. I mean, it's a nice little narrative, right? To write that story. Oh, they won this for so-and-so. No, they didn't. They want it for themselves. They all want rings. Like, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, why, you know, I hate those questions. Pro sports are definitely the land of cliches and the land of sometimes fake sentimentality. And we come up with these storylines and blah, blah, blah. How do you as a writer avoid 
sinking into the into the bullshit. I mean, I, I say this knowing I have used cliches at certain point. I'm not like, you know, perfect by any means. But I don't know. I think the longer you're in it and you just kind of see what what it is, you know, I, I think it's easy as a fan to kind of, you know, your favorite team can fit whatever narrative you have in your head. But when you know the people personally, you know, sort of machinations behind the scenes and, you know, not everything you can report to. Um, I, I think you have a little bit clearer picture and sometimes it's, it makes it even better. Sometimes you're like, I don't want to deal with these people ever again, you know, now that I know what really goes on behind the scenes. So I don't ever really feel like, you know, I, I have to work hard at not falling into like the cliches and the, you know, overwrought narratives. I, I think I just kind of see it for what it is at this point. And I, and I like that. I, I think it makes me a better reporter to not just kind of write what everybody wants you to write. It is Peyton Manning's last season. He is sure. going out and he sucked that year. He was not good that year. I know no, that guy not. was throwing ducks in the air. Like he had nine. a zero rating. He got benched. Right. I mean, yes. he was not good, Yeah, but there has to be a sort of need desire. Like readers do want you probably to write about Peyton Manning and they don't probably want you to shit all over him. So sure. Was that a challenge, a kind of weird challenge? Your first No, there is a balance. There is a balance in, you know, giving the people what they want, but also writing what's real. I mean, I remember that season. We had a Peyton foot tracker. Remember, he injured his foot that year. Uh, Every day we had to have a, a Peyton story, a Peyton update. And, there, you know, it's an injury. Nothing really changes over 24 hours, really. You had to have something to kind of feed the beast. So there's that element of it. But at the same time, you don't necessarily have to report that, you know, Oh my God, he's this legend with this remarkable human being for overcoming this foot injury. I mean, there, there's a, a balance there. And I think that year you, you kind of saw it with Peyton because yeah, he sucked and you know, he, he got benched. He had his year, the game he was supposed to break Dan Marino's record. He ended up getting benched because he threw like three picks in the first half, had a zero rating. It was against the chiefs. I remember that. And then he started weeks long of rehab for the foot. But the one thing I will give him is he's just so damn smart. So, you know, even when he sucked, he was still a lot better than, you know, a lot of the younger players that they had on the roster that sucked. And that's kind of the narrative that I would report on is how was he able to overcome the physical limitations at this point in his, in his career? What about him still made him somewhat good because of the knowledge he had? Like, I'm not going to like praise him just for, being Peyton Manning and overcoming a foot injury, but what is he actually doing about it? So I try to keep it real, but yeah, there is a balance of, you know, you always got to report something, but it doesn't mean you have to like make shit up. A bunch of years ago, I had Gary Myers on, who's been covering the NFL for a gazillion years. And he was saying how um, one of the biggest changes through the, whatever, four decades of his career was how quarterbacks are covered. Meaning mm -hmm. when he was writing about the New York Jets in the 1980s, you could walk up to Richard Todd or with the Giants, Phil Sims at their locker and, hey, Richard, can I get five minutes? Yeah, what do you want to know? Blah, 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 blah. And then now quarterbacks have become almost these golden gooses who are very untouchable. So just as an example, covering Peyton Manning last season, could you go up to Peyton Manning and just be like, hey, Peyton? No, it's like covering two teams. When you have a quarterback at that level, it's like covering teams. You got Peyton and you got everybody else. Peyton talks on a certain day. That's the only day you get him. You can't just go up to him in the locker room. It's gotten to the point where some teams now, like you can't even go up to any quarterback. The rookie third stringer, you know, sometimes like, no, you can't talk to him during training camp. You have to request a certain time to get him. 
the quarterback is a different position from the rest of the team. And it, when you got a s- celebrity like they had with Peyton those years, it, it's totally different. So you cover that Super Bowl winning team. Mm-hmm. And then you also covered the 2017 Broncos, who absolutely sucked. And yeah, it's a big drop from Super Bowl 15. <laughs> right. And it was it was Trevor Simeon was a quarterback. Brock Osweiler was a quarterback. Paxton Lynch a little bit was a quarterback. They were really, really bad. I think they won yeah. five games that year. Uh, the coach was one and done. Yeah. Is there anything more fun about covering a shitty team than covering a really, really great Super Bowl winning team? Depends on what level of shitty. Like, if you're mediocre and shitty, no, it's awful. Because nobody wants to read about it. They're boring. And they don't want to talk to you because they suck. But if they're like, oh, my God, train wreck implosion, journalistically, and I never want to sound like I take pleasure in other people sure. like feeling stuff, but journalistically, it's much more interesting, like covering the commanders now. I mean, we had five federal investigations at one point. You know, the the trainer who was being investigated for pushing pills was like the 20th most interesting story of the year. That is, it's all consuming, but it's interesting. There's just so much going on and they're always in the news. So that, yeah, journalistically, I I learn a lot and I enjoy learning a lot when I'm covering stuff. But, you know, when you get to the mediocre, boring part, that's, I hate it. I need you to be spectacular or I need you to be spectacularly awful. The 2017 Broncos finished five and eleven. Vance yeah. Joseph is their coach. It's his only season. Is this boring after a while? Um, that one wasn't boring because <laughs> it was still fresh. So it's like, you know, how are they gonna rebuild after the Super Bowl? And um, there were other storylines going on. I mean, Trevor Simeon started out really good, and you know, he's this no name who kind of wins the job. So there were storylines and the Denver market, that's all they care about anyway. Even when the Rockies are good or the Nuggets are good, all they care about are the Broncos for better or worse. So even when they suck, there's still a ready-made audience there. So that season wasn't as bad as it kind of lingered on. It became pretty monotonous. I, I mean, I I have a list of all the quarterbacks I covered. And when you look at them, I, you know, n- no disrespect to these guys, but a lot of them are kind of the same dude, you know, the same type of player that they're not going to be that star starter. And you just hope they can kind of hang on for a year or two. And then you're on to the next one, you know? Actually, it's sort of interesting because, um, you know, Brock Purdy comes along just as an example. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, Brock Purdy, Brock Purdy, man, Brock right. Purdy, he, right? Brock Purdy. He looks like he's going to be just another one, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, Trevor Simeon came along. People are like, Trevor Simeon, what a find. Trevor, they're always guys who come along and it's mm-hmm. like, whoa. Generally, there is a reason a guy was drafted in the seventh round or is an unsigned free agent. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I do feel like we need, we as journalists, like, I think the Brock Purdy balloon is just going to burst at some point because I just think it's this thing. I don't know. Like, how are we supposed to cover the Simeons and the Brock Purdy? Do we cover it with skepticism or do we just join the celebration a little bit? I think kind of both. Like, you know, Simeon was one of those where he really started out hot and he was a smarter quarterback of the ones they had on the roster. And he looked like he could be something, but then he couldn't stay healthy and defenses figured him out. So, and I've covered like, almost 20 of them, um, you know, back as a, have just cycled through and tried to win a starting job and stay along and end up getting cut for whatever reason. And it's, it's a lot of the same storylines, you know, they, they start out really good. The change alone has an effect on the team. 
but it's it's unsustainable for whatever reason. The quarterback gets hurt or defenses figure him out or he's just not as talented as he looked in that first game where he's this new shiny toy. Um, Taylor Heineke is another good example. Plucked off his sister's couch, literally. Comes in, has a really great game in the playoffs, wins a lot of games, but eventually it kind of peters off. And that's it's kind of what you see. You just don't always see him sustain wins a lot but when you think about it how many you kind of see the same with like the second year quarterbacks too I mean there's only so many that are really like the elite quarterbacks anymore it it feels like it's getting harder and harder to find that guy I feel like everybody's still chasing Mahomes who's the worst quarterback you've covered Paxton Lynch Paxton Lynch he was that bad very nice kid too very nice kid I don't know that he loved football but he was very nice kid who happened to be tall and could throw the ball really far but in the Broncos field house, there is still a mark on the wall of a ball he threw. And it was so inaccurate that it hit the side of the wall. Like, and it's still there. It, it's, you know, 15 feet high and it's way out of bounds. And that's the Paxton Lynch mark. It's, it's probably still there. So Paxton Lynch is on the Broncos and he sucks. Yeah. And he was a first round pick and he sucks. Yeah. Is it hard as a writer or are there ways as a writer to get teammates to sort of confirm to you that Paxton Lynch sucks? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, and a lot of it is is because of the structure of interviews. Like sometimes the only time you'll get certain guys are at the podium when they're in front of cameras. So they got a wall of cameras behind you. They're talking to a room of media. They're not going to go off on their teammate because they're going to face the backlash when they go in the locker room. So, yeah, they're going to tell you what they think you should hear. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll tell you that, oh yeah, he had real zip on the throw today. And you know, he's coming along. He's got confidence. We all believe in him. We're all behind him. We'll do whatever he needs. But you know, deep down, they kind of curse under the breath as walking back. But you know, what are they, what are they, are they really going to get up there and rip their teammate to shreds when, you know, when I was covering baseball, you would very much try to find your guys, your two or three guys, or maybe one guy, backup catcher, or a long reliever, yeah. who who would be like, look, this isn't on the record, but blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And guys will do that. Guys will do that. But they're not going to get up there at the podium and do that. Not always. Some might. You know, the ones the ones that are in good standing are typically the ones that will do it. You know, the ones that have the security. They don't want to worry about getting cut the next day if they piss off anybody or, you know. So 2020, you arrive in, in Washington. You're, uh, you're, you're Washington Post commander's writer. I feel like 20 years ago, when access was wide open, it seems like showing up at a new team, you would actually literally go around to players, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Nikki. Hi, I'm Nikki. Hi, I'm Nikki. Blah, blah, blah. They'd be like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm Nikki. I'm from here. And blah, blah, I grew up here. When you jump into a team in 2020, is that even a thing? Do they even notice that there's a new writer? Uh, yes and no. The weird thing is like, so Washington was starting from scratch almost completely like it was Ron Rivera's first year too. It was the coaching staff's first year with the team too. So everybody was new and kind of learning each other through zoom, basically Um, the writers, even the ones that have been here for years, we were kind of all in the same boat, which made it easier for me. I wasn't just the new kid trying to like, you know, trying to get to know everybody when everybody else was cool and friends and whatever. Um, but it, yeah, it made it it made it challenging because all you had were these Zoom interviews. You know, you couldn't come with a hundred feet of this team. I remember 
that first year, it was when they were in Pittsburgh and they upset the Steelers at Heinz Field or whatever it's called now. And I just happen to be staying at the same hotel as the team. And I see Ron, he's got a mask on. I got a mask on. And I just wave to him thinking, you know, he's seen me. He knows he knows who I am at this point. I swear, he did a double take. I'm still not sure he knows it was me at this point. And I, you forget, like, we're both wearing masks. He's only seen me on Zoom. Like, there's no way he would have, like, recognize me but that's that's what it was like in that that year so it was took me a little bit longer than i would have liked to get to know everybody but worked out i guess i mean i ask this a lot on the podcast doesn't matter if carson wentz knows who you are specifically um yes and no i mean i i i still think facetime is valuable and i do think you know building a trust with any player yeah, it does help for him to know who I am, what I've written to a degree, you know, because there, there's a lot of media that come through there. And I just throw this out there. I, I don't want to assume that he trusts or values when I work, but he, to build that trust, you kind of have to have that human interaction. So, yeah, I do think it matters that he knows who I am and who I work for and what I do and my approach to reporting and I think it matters that I'm there every day and, you know, I'm not just somebody that will parachute in, you know, drop a bomb and then leave, you know, like I'm there to see everything. So I hope in their mind, it shows a little bit more commitment and helps build trust or whatever, but you know, maybe at the end of the day, it doesn't, I don't know, but in my mind, I still think it does. One of the big reasons I had you on here is, um, we're coming up on the Super Bowl, So it's Sunday. We're recording this on Sunday, a week from today, you'll be in Arizona covering the Super Bowl the big Chiefs-Eagles game. I'm really fascinated by Super Bowl coverage because I don't fully understand what you can possibly, no offense to you, I mean this to anyone, what you can possibly get at an event that is so heavily covered by so many people with so many restrictions. It's like my worst nightmare. I've never covered a Super Bowl and people say to me, oh, are you disappointed? I'm like, fuck no. I, is my, my least favorite scene is that guy. I hated World Series. Like, I'm sure I would hate what is your game plan? You show up what day and what do you do? So I get there tomorrow morning or I leave here tomorrow morning. I get there in the afternoon. And then every day throughout the week, there's always there's a schedule of press conferences. So you pick and choose the ones you want to go to. And then, you know, I go in with at least a handful of stories that I, I want to really try to get. And barring news, I'll stick with those. But if there's something more interesting or if there's news, I'll pivot. But that at least gives me kind of a foundation to go on. So, you know, like... Fox Sports will have their media press where you can talk to all their analysts. NFL Network will have the same. Roger Goodell always has a press conference on Wednesday. The NFL PA with D. Smith, they'll always have a press conference one of those days, either Wednesday or Thursday. Both teams have availability in the afternoon. So if you want to get any players or coaches, you go out to their practices and try to get those. You don't go to the practice, you go to the press conferences. And then sometimes I've done this a few times now. There's a pool reporter for each team, and I've been one of them so you get to watch practice and then write up a quick report of what happened with very little detail who's on the injury report etc um and that goes around so that eats up a good bit of time but there's always something going on there's always somebody around i think radio row is a great place to just grab people and you know how does radio row work it's just an open it's like an open convention center room or you know Every radio station pretty much in America, it seems like, 
is is broadcasting. They'll have on guests. You'll see, you know, a bunch of former players coming through. You'll see executives coming through. You'll see all the players that aren't in the Super Bowl. A lot of them are doing promotional appearances, so you can get a lot of them then. So for my purposes as a beat reporter, it's a great way to get, you know, the national stories, but you can always find a lot of your own guys there and get a little bit of news here and there. Like if Deron Payne shows up and we get to talk about his contract, there's a news story. Um, Goodell's presser, surely there will be something about Dan Snyder. That's a newser. So there is a ton of media there and it is hard finding a different story on say Patrick Mahomes when everybody is writing about Patrick Mahomes, but you know, just the, the networking and kind of the, the ability to, to, to get little news here and there to me, it's always helpful. Efficient. No, no, but that's, that's the setup of it. So you wrote a story last year uh, for the post swagger distance gives kickers spotlight in NFL postseason. This is when you were in LA covering the Super Bowl. Your leader was of course, the Cincinnati Bengals heard the jokes and all the critics who questioned the decision to draft a kicker, a kicker. I like that. In yeah. the fifth round I love writing the kickers and punters. Don't give me, I love kickers. And punters. All right, wait, hold on. We'll get to that. <laughs> so when 20 two year old Evan McPherson drilled a 52 yard game winner at the end of regulation, Cincinnati's divisional playoff game against the Tennessee Titans, the team's yeah. official Twitter account reminded everyone of those jokes. That's why you draft a kicker, tweeted. No one seems to be questioning the Bengals pick now. Yeah. Wait, why do you love kickers and punters? Because I think they're fascinating. Everybody thinks they're not really football players, but what do they do all day in practice? I love, I just think they're different. I think they're different. And I love, I think there's an actual art to punting. I think it's incredible. It's like golfing, but with your foot, like directional punting. Like you ever watch some of these guys warm up and they can drop a punt anywhere they want on the field. It's incredible. But I also think they're really interesting dudes. Like they, they're just, the good ones have like a, a ton of swagger and you're just like the players in the locker room, love them. Others you're like, he could be anybody. And I'm not sure the receiver would know who he is, but I think they're fascinating. Like Tressway, the punter for the commanders, probably the most beloved player on that team. Wait, why? Cause he's the best player on this team. First of all, um, but he's he's great. He's normal. He's easy to get along with. He's hysterical. Like he has his own show on the team website. He's great. I mean, they have a in their locker room. I you know some teams have you know Connect Four or Ping Pong or whatever. The Commanders have cornhole. He kicks everybody's ass. So yeah, I mean these guys are like nobody really pays much attention to him on the outside. But I think they're the most interesting people in the room. Wait, I want to tell you something funny. I swear to God, I just did a Google search for you. And punter, and then you and kicker, yeah. and yeah. all sorts of shit comes up. So you really love these guys. I really do. I think they're great. I think they're great. I really think they're fascinating, and they're they're in on all the meetings. Like they're they're great. They're normal to talk to. You know, they're not getting a ton of media, so they're always somewhat excited when media talk to them. But they they know everything that's going on in the building. You know. That's very funny. So they're your go-to guy. They're like your middle reliever in baseball. They are. They are. I mean, offensive linemen, the the offensive linemen that like to talk are still the best because they know everything. They know the entire offense. They know everything. But some of them are like still old school and they're like, no, we're not talking to media. Some of them still have like in-house fine systems, you know, the old Alex Gibbs approach, but the rest are really good. After last week's Bengals game, What's the guy's name? Who the guy who pushed Mahomes and he was going out of bounds? Oh, Asai. After yeah. the game, he's by his locker, and BJ Hill, his teammate, is standing next to him. The reporters are gathered around and they're asking this poor guy questions. 
Mm-hmm. And BJ Hill is going, nah, man, no, to a question. And then another question be asking BJ Hill is a nah, man, no. And BJ Hill was really given a lot of props on social media, like way to stand up for a teammate. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, that's kind of bullshit. This is a grown human being. He's 20 something years old. Yep. People are allowed to answer questions. He's allowed to say no, or I don't want to answer that. I kind of hated it. What do you think of that? Yeah, I kind of had big feelings. I mean, I thought, oh, cool. He's, you know, trying to protect him. But yeah, at the same time, he's a grown man. If he didn't want to talk, he could say, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do the interview or whatever. He can talk for himself. I'm very curious. I mean, I I haven't seen anything from him directly on how he felt about that. I'm not sure that he would say even, you know, no. it's kind of like Washington. Some reporter did an interview with Carson Wentz and asked him about being cut twice. And the team president like lashed out. I'm like, does Carson want you like? protecting him like this he's a grown-ass man like yeah does he even want that to me to me i wouldn't i don't need somebody to like you know go to bat for me I, like, I'm, I'm i can handle myself it seems like one of the things the nfl has mm-hmm. um and I, I this is i'm not even asking you this as a woman i actually find it as equal as just any journalist at all gender be damned is like this machismo and like yeah. These are men's men. And how dare you? Blah, blah, blah. And we're going to stand Peter up. For of men. That's like, oh, you have to chip through that. Do you have to? Is that something you have to deal with as an NFL reporter? Um, Sometimes. I mean, that's where a lot of the bullshit comes in, like with these, especially when a team introduces a new coach. It's the same thing every time. He's a leader of men. You know, we really think he's the right leader for this team. Like, stop. Like. He's he's not the greatest guy. You paid him a lot of money and you think he can win games. Like, come on. But yes, yeah, sometimes I think I honestly think more of that comes from the coaches than the players. I think the players have really a lot of them are really open. Um, Terry McLaurin, one of my favorite players to cover ever. Really good player, great interview. He's open, he's honest, never turns down an interview. He talks a lot about, you know, kind of the mental health of the game and and being more vulnerable and, and dealing with more human emotions. And a lot of people, some other guys put up total fronts, sort of that machismo type thing. But I think more and more nowadays are pretty open and vulnerable and don't really try to hide that side of them, which I appreciate. Wait, I'm way off topic here. But um, a couple of years ago, Carl Nassib comes out as the first openly gay player in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I had to look up. It's like, oh, he's still playing. He played this year for Tampa. And like, that story vanished so quickly. Did you think more NFL players would be like, this is ridiculous? Or did you just think we're in a different era? And nah. I thought it might have lasted a little bit longer just because he was kind of the first, you know, the first active NFL player to really come out. This is cliche, but I do honestly believe that's kind of the beauty of an NFL locker room is you got guys with so many different beliefs, backgrounds, whatever, and they do come together to win games. Not everybody loves it, I'm sure, but on the whole, much are way more accepting. Another interesting question I've always wanted to ask an NFL writer. During the sort of Trump reign, there were divides everywhere. And I, you could not have a conversation about it, okay? Right. In the real world, in an NFL locker room where you have this, I'm, I'm being totally cliche, okay, but you have the burly white offensive lineman out of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. You have the African-American wide receiver from L.A., and they're in this room and they're together all the time. Did politics just not come up? I think they did. And I was always amazed by this, too, because I thought it would create more contention within the locker room because everybody's so they have deep feelings about their ideologies. 
And a lot of those cliches are true. Like, you know, a lot of the burly white offensive linemen are hardcore Trump supporters. Um, a lot of the black skill players are not. And I thought it would create a lot of tension, especially during the, the protests during the national anthem. And I really honestly, I mean, granted, I only covered two teams, but in that time I didn't see a whole lot. There were a lot of guys supporting the players who decided to to kneel during the national anthem. There was some debate about it. There were some guys that disagreed with it and went on record saying they disagreed with it, but there weren't like fist fights in the locker room about it. Granted, we're only there for like an hour at a time, you know, when they open the locker room during practices. So who knows what could have gone on behind the scenes, but if it had been something really nasty, it would have leaked, uh, you know, players talk. So I was, I was kind of amazed. It didn't reach, you know, a more contentious level than it did in my time during the really heated point. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Roman. I'm here with my son, Emmett, who just got his driver's license. Congrats, buddy. I'm finally free. I remember what it's like driving to the Jefferson Valley Mall to grab a slice of pizza and pick up the honeys. What does that mean? Blasting some Slayer on the radio, my hair blowing in the wind. You had hair? It was really great. Honestly, I'm just excited that I can finally drive on my own to the Royal Retro Store. I want to walk through the aisles, look at the throwback jerseys and hats, lather myself in the waterfalls of colors and textures and logos. Uh, I got some bad news. There's no Royal Retro Store. You just have to go to royalretros.com. That's the only way to buy their amazing stuff. Life is such a disappointment. All right, so wait. You go to the Super Bowl. You're at the Super Bowl. It's a mm-hmm. big deal, the Super Bowl. The press day when they have all the players out. And yep. you could go walk. It's called, what's it called? Media Day? Media Day, right? Media Night. It's a clown show. All right, I was going to ask, why is it a clown show? Because that's when they let any and everybody in and it becomes, you get interviews like, what's your favorite color? And, you know, if you could be so-and-so actor, who would you, like really dumb question. It just eats up your time. So you're trying to get like material for stories and you got to wade through tons of media. And there's a lot of people are doing it just to get their 15 seconds of fame. But yeah, I don't love that. I, I like I like the press conferences after their practices more because you get better access. You can get closer to them. First of all, they usually have them set up at tables. It's usually like a handful of guys each day. You can sit down with them. You can have conversations. You can sometimes request other guys. But the the first night is just such a circus, really. Whenever I see that, I always think like if I were there, I would just go to the one guy nobody's talking to. But is there no such thing as the one guy nobody's talking to? So everybody's talking to somebody. You'll, you might get a table where there's only a few media members, but everybody's got somebody talking to them. So it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's, yeah. it's the big game. Yeah. And you sit in the press box. You're one of 5,000 in a press box or an auxiliary press box or auxiliary seven press box, whatever you are. What can you do during that game to be productive? Um, I kind of treat it like I do any other game I'm covering, to be honest. God, I sound like a player saying that. Oh, this week, like any other week. Yeah. Um, honestly, the biggest the biggest hassle with Super Bowl, the actual game, is just getting there because you go on these buses. There's like waves of buses and you kind of have to fight the crowds immediately to get on the buses. It takes forever to get over to the stadium, blah, blah, blah. So once I'm there, I mean, I, I try to go back and listen to all the interviews or catch up on things that I didn't get during the week. I like to know as much as I can going into a game and, and know all the interviews throughout the week, know what people said, just in case something happens in a game. And I'm like, I can reference back. Um, 
so I use that to play catch up. I try to get there around four hours early. There's not much you can do at the stadium itself because it's so guarded. It's not like you can go on the field and roam around and see who's warming up. Um, but sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll see other media members. There's, there's a lot of national folks that I'll only see at these league events. So I'll catch up with them. Um, but I mainly use it for research, catch up. And then during the game, it's, you're looking for anything. So usually I'm writing the sidebar and, um, my colleague, Mark Maskey writes a gamer. So I, I look for anything. I love writing the sidebar because you can read, you can write about whatever you want. What are you actually looking for? I look for, you know, a certain play that I can, you know, if it's a game altering play, I'll write about that. If it's a player, I'll write about that. If it's a moment, anything. I mean, it's completely open and I love that. You could do whatever you want. The hard part is always trying to find something different, going back to what we were talking about earlier, because everybody and their mother is covering that game. So why the hell are they going to go to a Washington Post to read about Super Bowl? So you got to find something different. And I don't want to go too far outside the box and like, you know, have my editors be like, what the, what is this? You know, but you're just kind of always looking for that one thing that you can kind of expound on and blow out a little bit. Okay. So you're watching the game. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find yourself hyper, hyper focused on the play of, uh, I'm going through the Chiefs roster. We'll just go Darian Kennard, their tackle. Yeah. You find yourself riveted by the play of Darian Kennard. I don't even know if he's yeah. a starter. I don't even know if he's a starter, but he played at Kentucky and he's a rookie. Darian Kennard. You see yeah. something in his play. He hustled. He's like, he's he's hustling, or you see him on the sideline praying all the time. He's your kicker, basically. <laughs> the game is over. Yeah. Can you get Darian Kennard? Um, they usually have players set up at like stations, so like five different podiums. I'm assuming if they do it the, like they did the last ones. So yes, maybe. I mean, my goal is you gotta get somebody who's relevant enough to make the story worth it. Um, but if he does something really cool, then he would be made available anyway. So yeah, you could probably get Darren Kennard. I want that Kennard story. On it. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I'm a little fascinated by your background. I got to say you're from North Carolina, went to UNC. Yeah. Yep. You worked at sports illustrated as a editor slash producer. Yep. 2007 to 2012. Well, after I left the magazine, what was that job? I started as the MMA and boxing producer, did that for a year. And then I was the NBA editor for the website for four years. So anything that went on the website, I would just edit, produce, put photos on headlines. That was basically it. Did you like that job or is that just like gateway to get into journalism? Um, I mean, it was a pretty good first job. And I was, I had interned with SI kids for two summers and then that came available at the end of my internship. So I'd really wanted to be a writer, but they're like, oh, you know, it's a full-time job at Sports Illustrated. Sure, I'll take it. So I enjoyed it. I mean, I love living in New York. I love the people I met. And I kind of stayed on that track. It was comfortable, I guess I'd say. Um, I kind of stayed on that track. I went to Sports on Earth for a hot minute. That's not even on your LinkedIn page. I know. It was like six months. I went there and I was. it was right when they were launching. So I helped them launch. And then I got a job offer from the New York Times and I couldn't turn that down. So I left. I wasn't looking to leave. I, so, yeah, I did kind of did the same thing at the New York Times, but I was more on hard news. I did. I was like the overnight homepage editor. So it was just me at the New York Times at night from like 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. covering a lot of wars. That was interesting. And then when I went to Denver, I finally got back into writing, but not intentionally. They just needed some help with Broncos coverage because they felt like they didn't have enough stories that were being written. So I just kind of helped out and wrote as much as I could and 
like, oh, you're young enough to where we can pay you very little and you still be considered cheap labor. So we'll we'll make you a B writer. And but you were hired in Denver as an editor, not as a writer. That's correct. You didn't go to Denver thinking one day I'm going to be covering Super Bowls and I want to write about. No, no. I mean, my my sport was the NBA. I grew up around basketball. My brother played basketball at Brown. Like we were a basketball family. So like football wasn't even on my radar. They just needed help with Broncos coverage. Did that and it worked out. Now I love it. I love covering the NFL. Wait, I have to ask you a few questions, though. Okay. You're at Sports Illustrated. I am a Sports Illustrated alum. I still have a lot of friends there, okay? But you're at Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Are you kind of like the ship is sinking? <laughs> Are you thinking that when you're there? No. See, I had, I think they were still in transition mode. So there were still black cars taking everybody home at night. That was when they still oh, had, yeah. like, yeah, oh, yeah. Like, Terry would get a black car home. They were still serving dinner at night, like five course meals, salmon dinners. They were still being bagels into the kitchen at yeah in the morning. Um, so yeah, it was still pretty cushy then. Um, so I didn't really think about it that much. Hell, I was just glad to be employed out of college. So right. Um, but Mallory Rubin, who's now at the Ringer, she's like the executive editor of the Ringer. She came on about a year after I did, um, and she was a college football producer. So we were kind of on the same level. Like no woman had been hired above us at that point. And she and I would kind of be like, all right, well, there's a very clear ceiling here. Um, She eventually got promoted. I ended up leaving. But yeah, I didn't feel like it was sinking. I got out before it was like sold to, was it the Maven or whatever? Maven. There was also just a clear, like it was web in print. Like there was very little crossover, I felt. Like, yeah, I mean, I would get some stories from, the mag writers, but they did not believe in blending then. They couldn't figure out how to do it. And I never understood why they couldn't figure it out. But I mean, I worked there and I guess in a way I didn't see it either. So I'm part of the big problem, but like they just were like moving in molasses as the web was coming along and they did not understand. Right. I don't know. It was weird. Wait, so you go to sports on earth. Okay. You go to sports on earth. I so rarely have talked about sports on earth on this podcast, but it actually fascinates me because for people to know is this website that drew all these really great writers, like great writers. Will Lee mm-hmm. Le- was there and Poznanski was there. A million different people are there. All right. So you're there. Yeah. Sports on earth. This place is going to be killer. It's going to be the thing. And you left after six months when yeah. you were there. Were you like, uh, this isn't going to work. There were signs. Um, there wasn't complete buy-in. And that, that's why I knew it was just not going to really go far. And it was kind of, it was built around Joe Posnanski. Right. A lot of great writers, but it was built around him. And I don't know that it's always great to build a website around one writer. writer. We got no promotion. And it was a USA Today product. So, yeah, it wasn't a great start. But it was fun just kind of, you know, helping launch it from the very start. Like, I remember being involved in design meetings on what the website will look like and potential hirings and... There were a lot of great people there. It's how I met Chuck Culpepper. Absolute best. I love that guy. Yeah. So. Him, you could build a you could build a website around. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. great. He's yeah, great. great. Let me ask you a final question. I'm required to ask it on this podcast. Yep. What is the worst moment you've had with an athlete in your career? Actually, he's not an athlete. It was a coach. You know, you get hit on sometimes and that's not pleasant. And you just try to move on. Um, actually I had one coach take it so far as to go into the media room, like every, every team, like there's always a media workroom, you know, it's usually connected to the facility somehow. And he actually walked in the media workroom. So it's me and other reporters sitting there and he like handed me gift cards and they're like 
$500 a piece, these gift cards. I'm like, what the fuck? Um, and then he walked out and it was just me. So I felt totally humiliated. I was like, this is ridiculous. I just want to do my job. Like I never want, I'm not, I don't want people to think that there's anything like that. And I just, I hated it. So I turned in the cards to the team's PR person and it launched an investigation and it was an investigation that felt like an interrogation. And by the end, I felt like they were blaming me and it was, it sucked. Um, but you know, the, the staff got, the whole staff got fired. So it didn't really matter in the end. I didn't have to deal with them again, but that was probably the worst time. You know, it was, you know, nothing. And I hate saying this because I don't think there's a degrees of, you know, well, you had it worse than I did or whatever. There's not, it's, you know, there shouldn't be any of it, but it was nothing terribly egregious. It's just, I just want to do my job. I don't want to be seen as the female writer. I just, I'm a reporter who happens to be a, a woman, you know, like I don't want this to ever be an issue. I love my job, like whatever. So when that came up, that was, that was tough. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like that whole interrogation process as if I had done something wrong. When you say an interrogation process, what, yeah. what, do, you mean? what do you mean? The way they did, they brought in an outside lawyer. This is the team. And, yes. And I was interviewed for about an hour about the circumstances with this coach and everything that happened. And it, I mean, they, it, it was not fun. <laughs> And like, I, I, I have nothing to hide. I told them everything and, you know, just some of the framing of the questions. It was just like, geez. So it was eye opening. It was really eye opening. Um, not something I want to relive. Um, but honestly, with all the players, all the players have been incredibly respectful. Treat me like any other reporter. And that's all I want, you know, like they've been cool. Um, and, and all the other coaches, it was just that one instance. Um, so yeah, it was, I learned a lot in that experience and I just, I don't want to deal with that again, but what'd you learn? What'd you learn from it? It learned more about how they, how these things are handled and why things don't get changed because of how they're handled, you know? So it's unfortunate. I have to think when you're sitting in this meeting and this asshole shows up and he puts a gift card down and you see what it is, you just feel like someone punched you in the fucking stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's me and I'm always like one of, if, if I'm not the only female reporter in the room, I'm one of like three. So I'm sitting there. It's me, four other dudes. Coach comes in, hands me this. And I can, I can imagine what they're all thinking. Like, you know, and that's not, not me at all. And I, I never want anybody to, to think that's me. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's humiliating. Someone said to me just the other day, he said, on your podcast, you really treat women journalists with respect and dignity, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's a super weird compliment. Like, I kind of know what you mean, but that's weird because why wouldn't I treat, you know, like, why would I not? Right. And I wonder, like, is that still a thing? Like, do you still feel like, do you still feel like you are a, quote, woman covering, not you personally, how you are mm -hmm. viewed? Do you still feel like people see a woman covering the NFL differently than a man covering the NFL? No, not necessarily. No, I think I, I do all the same things. I, I 
I'm treated the same access is, is equal. I think every now and then you're going to get some people are like, you know, what, what the hell do you know about football? You've never played to which I tell them that literally every other male reporter I've been with have not played either. So, um, but I, you know, although on the whole, they're all respectful. When I say respectful, they treat me just like a reporter. They, they understand I'm there to do a job male or female. It doesn't seem to phase them. And I appreciate that, but I don't feel different when I go to work and I want it that way. I do think there are ways that being woman benefits me. I think sometimes maybe, and I'm, I'm making some assumptions here that maybe some guys are willing to tell me things that maybe they aren't willing to tell their male counterparts. Maybe it's just because of the way I approach the job. I'm sure there are things they're more willing to tell others than me too. I don't feel like it's, been all that different, thankfully. Let me ask you a final, final question. Uh, what is your prediction for this exciting Super Bowl? Chiefs. I think the Chiefs are going to win it just because Mahomes is Mahomes. Do you want to score? I don't need to score unless you want to take it a guess. It's wrong, but I'll give you yeah, a I know, right? <laughs> You know what I love? Can I just say what I love? I love when sports writers, like we make a prediction, it's wrong, yeah. and then people yeah. try to own you on Twitter. And it's like... Oh, Wow, you got me. My wow. guess wasn't correct. Like, right, wow. exactly, exactly. And let me ask you the final, final, final question. Give yes. me every way people pronounce your last name. Oh, Javala, Habvela, Jahavala, um, everything. Is this an elementary school nightmare? Oh, yeah, nobody could pronounce it, you know. But as I told you, I respond to anything close, anything close. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Good enough. I'll take it. Well, Nikki, look, thank you so much for doing this, especially on last okay. minute. I'm very excited to see what kicker story you have to come up with during the Super Bowl. It's going to be legendary. Harrison Buckner, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Do this. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of, of course. I want to thank today's guest, Nikki Jabala, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Nikki on Twitter at Nikki Jabala and read her work in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I would really appreciate it. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>